The scripture for this morning is Exodus chapter 34, which you can find starting at the very bottom of page 129 in the Pew Bible in front of you, if you'd like to follow along. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. So wideness in God's mercy I cannot find in my own And it keeps this fire burning To melt this heart of stone Keeps me aching with the yearning Keeps me glad to have been caught In this raging fury that they call the love of God. Now I've seen no band of angels, but I've heard the soldier's songs. Love hangs over them like a banner Love within them leads them on To the battle on the journey And it's never gonna stop Ever widening their mercies And the fury of His love
Thanks, Sarah. <clears throat> a lot of times when Christians who are rightly pious hear that song, they immediately are somewhat offended by the word reckless being used twice. Maybe you were feeling that way. The song was originally written by um, a man named Bridge Mullins who had a terribly protracted relationship with his father, struggled with alcoholism most of his adult life. Um, he was one of the top recording artists in Christian circles for years, but he had all of his money given to a charity, and he lived on a Native American reservation, one of the poorest ones in the country, so that he could live among some of the worst experiences of real humanity, trying to live like St. Francis, in poverty, full of joy, in the midst of suffering. And a lot of his experience was seeking to sort, of out, sort out the fact that he was so angry at the love of God and so in need of its ferociousness at the same time. He had no idea how to put those together. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about the love of God, and I've been doing my best to try to, to discourse on it biblically in a way that would help you feel its weight so that you could experience some of the moving power of the weight of glory that it bears, and so that the love of God would not roll off our tongues like a cliche, but would flow out of us like if we bled. And um, so this morning, I want to talk about the ferociousness of the love of God, the power of the love of God, in relationship to one of the ways God reveals himself to be loving that we find extraordinarily offensive. And my hope is to free you from a powerful misconception that can limit the joy you take in the love of God and to open up some vistas of the real power and strength of that love. So um, if, in our culture, if you were to be asked the question, are you a jealous person? And you were to be asked not even what the real answer to that is, but what would you like the answer to be? Almost everybody would have a knee-jerk response, and the answer would be, well, like, no, I'm not a jealous person. I don't want to be a jealous person, right? Um, but if I asked you the question, are you a loving person? Would you, would you want people to think of yourself as a loving person? I would, I would think that most people who are even had this, like, smallest modicum of emotional health would want to be like, well, yeah, I want to be a loving person. I want to be thought of as a loving person. I want to be a loving person. And in our culture, we think of being loving as a really positive thing. We think of jealousy as a particularly negative thing. But if you think about it a little bit more carefully, it's hard to imagine um, how these two can be that separate. I mean, if you, if you, if you um, think about jealousy when you don't think of it as jealousy. So think of something that you're zealous for. 
could be a person that you are infatuated with or in love with or married to. It could be a person um, that you care about as a person. You just think they're a great person. It could be an idea. It could be a politic. It could be anything that you feel very passionate about. And then imagine or think of a real situation where somebody attacks it. And think about how you feel and the reaction that you have. That protective response that flows out of your, your zeal, your zeal of love for anything, right? We are all very naturally and humanly jealous for the things that we're zealous for. It's a, it's a universal part of being a human being, and we're not actually capable of not being jealous for what we're zealous for. We are pretty acrobatic about not calling it jealousy. And so one of the things I think that we need to recognize is that jealousy is the protective form of loving zeal. And what that also means, though, is that the God that is zealous for us and the ferociousness of his love is the God who is jealous for us. That's the thing about love. That's why love is so terrifying. That's why human beings are so adept at naming things that are not love, love, so that they can take this out of it. This is the thing that's so terrifying about it, that if we give ourselves in ferocious zeal to something, we are going to have a ferocious jealousy when it is attacked because the protectiveness that it deserves in giving ourselves to the protection of its honor and its loyalty is a right thing. There are many cases in which indifference is a great vice. And if you're not indifferent, the right response is jealousy. Okay, I want to I go through three things this morning. I know really creative. A pastor has three points. But in the first week, I said, in order for us to really feel, for the love of God to do something for us, I said, one of the things that has to happen is we can't just know a couple of propositions. We have to enter into the story of the thing itself. Like, like who God really is and who we really are and what has really happened between us. And so I want to structure my sermon this morning around that story. Who's God? Who are we? And why does this matter for how things are going to go between us? And my hope is that in thinking about that and in reasoning through it in relationship to what Scripture says and what the gospel teaches, I'm hoping you'll, you'll feel something, okay? So the first thing related to God is that God displays his ferociousness, his ferocious love in his jealousy. I did not say that the only way God displays his ferocious love is in his jealousy. But he does display his ferocious love in his jealousy. So the first thing for those who might be shaky on the first point is just that God does reveal himself to be ferocious in his love, to be enormously loving in a powerful, unfailing, driven kind of way. So in the book of Hebrews, it says, Therefore, since we, that is we who believe in Jesus and belong to him, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for—so the reason we do all those things for— our God is a consuming fire. Why use that metaphor? Right? Fire is one of those things that can do really good stuff and really bad stuff. Right? That's why Johnny Cash said that romantic love was like a burning fire. But that's not in the Bible. You can see this all through the Bible. In the, in the Old Testament, when God is revealing himself as a covenant lover, he says to them, he says, this is what I'm like. The Lord passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. In Ephesians 3, 17 and 19, it says, 
I pray for you, that's us, right? I pray for you being rooted and established in love, that you may have the power together with all the saints, that is everybody who believes in Jesus, to grasp, to gra- like to feel and know, to get how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love, which surpasses understanding, so that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. We've talked a lot at High Point about pursuing the fullness of God. And what the Apostle Paul says in this passage is, until we both intellectually and emotionally, in the deepest sense of grasping and knowing, the, the something of the real height and depth and breadth of the love of God as it's displayed in Christ, we, we can't really experience the fullness of God. And if we do, we can actually experience something of the measure of the fullness of God. That it is the ferocious size and scope and character and type of love that is in God, displayed preeminently in Christ, that will dramatically change everything about us. And then in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul is talking about how many things in this world, in this life, function to separate us from God's love. To, to interpose itself and to split us apart and to fill us with fear or pride so that we won't be his. And he, he says this at the end of that passage. He says, For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he does not say that because we are good at staying close to God. He says that because he has just displayed over eight chapters our bankruptcy and God's ferocious love that he has given us to Christ and he has justified himself and us simultaneously in the cross of Christ. And he has, through Christ's death and resurrection, drawn us to himself and filled us with his spirit and strengthened us with all power and led us into virtue and changed us over time and done all these things to hold us and keep them to himself because in him— those things will not win in trying to separate us from the one true lover that we've ever had and to make us creatures who can know what love is and accept it and live in it. God is ferociously loving. In Scripture, there's essentially two ways that God demonstrates the potency of his love because we live in a world of fake love, and so God doesn't just say, Oh, I love you, by the way. He, he does extraordinary things to demonstrate the ferociousness of his love. And the first thing positively that he does to show us positively that he loves us is this thing that the Bible calls a covenant. The, the problem with us in late modernity America is we don't have any covenants. And so we really don't know what that means, experientially speaking. You'd be like, well, we have marriage, Nick. Like, yeah, but we don't treat marriage like a covenant. We treat marriage like a contract. So we really don't have any covenants in our culture right now. Now that—the good news is, is we're going to get covenants back because they're fundamentally human, and you can only persuade yourself you don't need them for a little while. And we were only like, you know, 20 or 30 years into this, and we're going to—at some point, human beings are going to be like, we need to—we need to sort this out. And it's partly because whenever people are really passionate about something, they want to make promises. If somebody says they love you and they don't want to make promises, they don't love you. Promise is passion made permanent. And so what God does in the Bible is he makes a formal agreement of covenantal binding love most closely associated with marriage 
for us to understand positively, not just that he loves us, not just that he loves us a lot, but the extent of the commitment that he's making to us, the, the, the character of himself that he's giving to us as a husband, and also the character that he demands from us so that we can function in that relationship of love. And so underst- like understanding what a covenant is and what that covenant love is like is fundamental to understanding who God is. And it really is only then, especially at this moment in time, that we'll be, under, be able to understand how God looks at marriages and how God looks at our na- the nature of how we devote ourselves to each other. And ultimately, I don't believe it's quite as formal, but I believe that we should use that category partly in our relationship to our local church. Not as like a full covenantal belonging. We fully covenantally belong to God, but as we're part of the, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ together— if we're not committed to each other, to be committed to God together in a place, in a relationship with real people, I don't see how we can act as though or believe we're trying to live into the covenant of love that God has created this thing he calls the church. Does that make sense? Now, this, the second thing is that negatively he displays the ferocity of his love by the display of his jealousy. And you can see this because Exodus 20, what happens in Exodus 20? You can yell it out if you know. What's Exodus 20? The Ten Commandments, right? It's the, it is the beginning. It is the first bit of God explaining the meaning of the covenant he's making with us and what our part in it is. Okay? I'm going to give you these ten rules. You're going to do them because it's part of how we're going to be related to each other. So in the very first one, he says you're not going to have any idols. You're not going to make any idols of anything in the world. You're not going to have any other gods. He says you shall not bow down and worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So the justification he gives for the positive promise of his covenant is the negative alternative of his protective love that he is also a jealous God. These are one in the same. They flow out of the same heart. The same ferocity produces the zeal of God in love for us. It's unfailing nature to go and find us and to love us and his jealousy, his protective love over us, even when it's terribly painful. Now, so then you might ask the question, okay, so you're clearly using the word jealousy differently than we usually use it. Yeah, I'm using it the right way. Um, so how do you define it? This, is, this would be a fairly simple, but I think straightforward and correct definition. Jealousy is something like this. The protective response to a breach in right honor and loyalty. Jealousy is the protective response to a breach in right honor and loyalty. Now listen. Do you see why culturally the concept of oyer of honor and loyalty is intentionally undermined. We live in a culture that treats even saying honor demands this or loyalty demands this as fundamentally illegitimate categories. And yet we can't help but feel them. People do things in your life and, or you do stuff for other people and you think like that, that creates a relationship to you and there, something ought to be produced in that and they, then they don't live. You feel betrayed. Because honor and loyalty are fundamental human realities that can't be denied, even if you deny the categories in speech. Right? You can, you can date a girl and not marry her and then abandon her and she'll feel upset at you, even though you never made a formal covenant. And she's right. And vice versa, too. They're right. Because certain acts— are supposed to create honor and loyal relationships. Whether or not you have a formal thing about them or not. What does that look—what does that mean? So, so what, is it, what are the components of right, honor, and loyalty? It means at least these three things. 
Okay, it probably means more. This is simplified. But it means at least these three things. And these come up over and over again in the Bible. One is attribution. That you say that reality is reality. God made me. I owe him my devotion. I am a sinner, and Jesus died to save me. He gave me everything that I have. My hope is in him. I put my hope in other things, and I do think that's wrong. It's, it's attributing to reality what is actually real, and God is the center of that. Right? As opposed to human beings who attribute all the good things to their own choices and all the bad things to stuff God should have kept from happening. The second is thankfulness or appreciation, which is the positive form of saying thank you to the one who you attribute good things to. Which is one of the reasons why we worship as Christians and pray and express thankfulness and worship in prayer. Because God deserves a continual thankfulness from us because loyalty and honor to one like himself deserves appreciation. And then third is fealty, which is an older word, but essentially means it means functional loyalty. That you act loyal towards that person no matter what. And when one or more of these is breached— Jealousy is the right protective response that should be aroused. Now, you might say, okay, well then, what is God jealous for then in relationship to those things? Just me? And the answer is no. Like I said last week, God loves everything that should be loved. He loves what is lovely and what is, what is worth something and what he sets his affections on rightly. And so the, the most valuable and most lovely thing in the universe is himself is God. That's why he's jealous for his own name, and he's jealous for his own glory. And because himself as he is, is what he's going to give us forever. He, he's not going to destroy that or get rid of it. He's not going to change himself. God is perfectly happy to be the way he is. He's exactly the way he should be, and he's not going to change for us. And that's good. Right? And so there's a few things that he is jealous for. One is his deity. He is God, and we aren't. And we, when we don't acknowledge his deity, we do what the Bible calls idolatry. That is, we substitute a God for the God who is real. Sometimes it's our will. Sometimes it's good things in our life that we make as though they're the most important thing. Like a lover, or a job, or a pursuit, or a dream, or a child, or a spouse. Or sometimes it's like we literally make up a God. And we make up a, a religion that is not one that honors how God has spoken and shown himself in creation and revelation. We deny, we don't attribute, and we don't thank, and we don't give loyalty to his deity, right? The second is his sovereignty. God is in charge. This is his creation. He has the right to tell us what to do. And when we say, well, I'm going to do whatever I want, and I'm not going to do what you tell me to do, and I'm not going to be faithful to the covenant either of creation or the covenant of being your people, as expressed in God's revelation— we do what the Bible calls sin, which is essentially a breach against the sovereignty of God. The problem is, God is jealous for his sovereignty. And then his glory. His glory is the display and appreciation of his beauty among all creatures and in all of creation. And when we glorify ourselves, what the old English used to call vainglory, pride, we obscure our reception of God's glory, other people's reception of God's glory, right? It's a little bit like a, a bunch of friends, like they're watching an amazing sunset out a window, and you like get up and you try to cover like the whole window because you think your body's pretty or something, you know? 
Like, it's just ridiculous. Or like, some kid like makes one of those terrible paintings. They spend like two minutes on, so just so you'll say it's fantastic. And they like stick it up on the window so you can't really see the sunset anymore. It's a horrible thing, right? Not just the paintings, but I mean, just kidding. No, but the fact that we try to, we make a fake beauty. We, we, we make a fake appreciation. We make a fake credit. And then we put that up in our own hearts about ourselves, in front of other people. We persuade other people to be taken in by it. And we obscure the beauty and glory and majesty and worth of God. And God is jealous for that. And he should be jealous for that. And then one of the four things, there's probably a hundred things. But the fourth thing is, is his inheritance. That's your favorite, probably, because that's you. That's the reason why he's jealous for you. God is jealous for all the things that are his. That in his creation of all things, and him working all things for them to be united in all the goods of reality, so they could all be enjoyed and enjoy each other forever in the beauty of all right loves as a full expression of his beautiful character and glory. That there are things in his creation— beings that he has made to be part of that, that he has made to be his in it. And it is all of creation, but it is namely, most specifically, the, his image bearers. Those who he created to be like him, and those who he created to have the capacity to have a deep and meaningful and fulfilling relationship with him. That he gave them the gift of existence, and the gift of consciousness, and the gift of conscientiousness a moral capacity, and a gift of all kinds of things. And he, they belong to him, and he wants them for himself because he wants his own inheritance, and he's jealous over it. He's jealous over you. He's jealous over you because you are his inheritance. And you are his inheritance, however, to be in union with all the other things he's jealous about. You are to be his inheritance who experiences his glory and who lives under his good sovereignty and who knows and appreciates his deity. And so all of those must be one. You can't pick and choose them. You can't be his inheritance and get rid of the other three. They are part of the union of his ultimate plan. He is jealous for them all. He will give none of them up. The only thing that can be eliminated is a portion of what should be his inheritance, which is what Christians call damnation. It's not a good thing, right? Now, John Piper says it this way. God is the only being in the universe for whom jealous passion for his own glory is a supreme act of love. God is jealous for all goods. Himself, all goods, including his inheritance, which is all image bearers that he wants for himself. Okay. So secondly— God's jealousy displays the condition of our loves. When we look, we see God's jealousy for what it is, with all of the virtue that it contains, as right as it is, and we start to compare ourselves to it, it starts to display what our, the condition of our love. You could, you could think of it this way. In our human nature, as God has created us in his image to be, there is enough of us that is still connected to our original purpose that we realize there's something right about jealousy. There's something in us that when something attacks a good in our life, there's something inside us that screams, it matters. It matters! Right? And even when our culture doesn't want to pay the price for what matters. So, for example, there's a whole underbelly of America 
since the, the, since the advent of no-fault divorce, of people that are so angry, and they're not allowed to tell anybody that they're angry. There's so many women whose husbands just decided to just do something else. They just decided to leave them. They decided to marry somebody else. They decided to get another life. And those, those women who are abandoned and scorned are incredibly angry about it. They're, they're filled with a jealous rage for what has been done to them. And we just pass over it like, oh, you know, divorce. You know, it's, it's usually 50-50 fault anyway, and it's, it's everybody's fault, and nobody's fault, and, you know, Mary, you know, we weren't really created to be monogamous anyway, and that kind of stuff comes apart, and it's, you just got to get on with your life. It's just too messy to think that people can stay together forever anyway, and sometimes it just doesn't work out. You just can't make such a big deal about it. That's bull! She pledged him her life. He pledged her his life. He gave her the best years of her youth, beauty, and fertility. She slaved for him. She got up in the middle of the night. She did the stuff. She took care of him when he was sick. Because they had told each other they would do it forever. They promised in sickness and in health, in good and bad, for richer, for poorer. If, you have, if you're in a funk for a half of a decade— I'm going to stay with you. And she is right to be angry. And she is livid to be angry. And she should be angry. And there are men who feel the same way. Whose wives just decided they'd rather just get the child support and not to deal with the man. And raise their kids the way they wanted to. And not have to negotiate with masculinity about how we're going to raise children. And I'll get the $1,200 a month. And I'll move out of state. And I'll raise these kids the way I want. Because I would just rather be without you. You're a loaf of bread to me. But I'm not going to give myself to you. And they're angry. And about one in five younger men say they don't ever want to get married. Because they've seen it happen. There's a bunch of men that won't even date women. There's a bunch of tech guys making like AI autonomous sex dolls that can have conversations with them so they don't have to date and marry a woman because they're terrified of how they're going to be treated. Because that's how we treat each other. And people are angry about it. And they're livid. And they're jealous. And they should be. And they can't say a word. Can't say a word about it. Because then they'll just look angry. But we know, you know, there are situations where jealousy is a truthful thing. It's a right thing. You know it's real. And yet, when you see people actually try to execute their jealousy, it's so ugly. <laughs> they overdo it, and they underdo it, and they attack. And you can tell that people do it out of like weaning, weaniness and weakness and being a sucker. And some people do it out of being a rage machine. And like when you have these big arguments and you're so sure you're right, because anger produces clarity and a sense of justice. And then you strike out and then you realize you're an idiot. And you're like, oh, I'm so bad at this. And everybody's bad at this. And we trust our own, our own jealousy and nobody else's, right? And we're like, ah. Oh. And here's the thing about that. That's how we really feel deep down if we're really careful about our thinking. But here's the thing. God agrees with you. God totally agrees with that. In fact, there's a passage that secular and unbelieving people, people who attack the Bible, often used as an example of the Bible's hatred of women. It's a misogynist passage. It's misogynist. The whole Bible's misogynist, right? And they're like, this is a woman being treated so bad, right? And it's not. So when, you should read this. In Numbers chapter 5, there's a situation, right? Because this is going to arise, where a, if a husband believes that his wife had committed adultery, but he doesn't have any proof, 
right? The law is if you find them, like in flagrante, they both have to be stoned, man and woman. But if you're just jealous, like you think, you think she did something, but you don't know, right? Here's, here was the only recourse a Jewish man had. He had to get an offering that would have some expense to himself. He had to go with his wife to the priest, into the temple. He had to make an offering, and he had to say, basically, I'm jealous. I think my wife has cheated on me. I can't prove it. I'm so angry. Ah, right? Then the, what the priest would do is they, they would pronounce a blessing and a curse over the woman. If you did this, may God curse you with infertility is the subtext. If you didn't do this, may God bless you, right? And then he takes some of the dust off of the floor, just a little sprinkle of dust, from the very holy place that represented the presence of God. And he's to sprinkle it in like a, a ceramic cup of water, of holy water, the purest water they could get their hands on. And then he was supposed to take the curses and blessing that he'd written on a scroll and rinse it off into that water. And then the woman was to drink that water. Okay? Now some people are like, well, that's like drinking poison. Like that's kind of—it's like the witch thing where like they threw him in the water, and if you drown, you weren't a witch, and if you float, then you are, and we kill you. You know? Like it's like damned if you do, damned if you don't, massage this anti-woman thing. Okay, so I actually—Jill and I actually spent hours this week trying to research what would have been part of ink at that specific moment in time. Like what was in ink? Were there toxic things in it? Right? And the answer is, it wasn't until about 200 BC, a thousand years later, that some like, um, like some, some heavier metals and stuff like that started to be put into ink so it would last longer. But in 12 to 1500 BC, it was a little bit of carbon, a little bit of an alum gum, and water. And so it didn't last very long, but it worked perfectly fine, and it had no negative physical effect on a woman who would drink it. It is the only command of justice in the entire Bible, that is the Torah section, which requires a divine miracle in order for a person to get justice. It's the only one. And if you know something about the ancient world, almost all ancient cultures had some form of paterfamilias, which is the head of the house, the male head of the house, had the right to do what he wanted with everybody. He was the undisputed emperor, meaning that if one of his kids was bad enough and he wanted to kill him, he could kill him. If his wife had another girl that he was going to have to feed, and he wanted to expose the girl to one of the idols so that it would die and he wouldn't have to feed it, and he would be blessed by the gods, he could do it. And if he wanted to kill his wife because he thought that she had screwed around behind his back, he had every right to kill her but not a Jewish man. Not under the Torah. He had no recourse. The only person he could turn to was God. He had to bring his wife into the temple, and she would drink a drink that wouldn't harm her at all physically. And only God could give him justice if he deserved justice, and only God could vindicate her if justice was her vindication. There's no other command like that, because jealousy cannot be left in our hands. See, God agrees with that. But the only reason it works is because we are bad in our jealousy, and God's jealousy is beautiful and pure and perfect and absolutely righteously executed. In fact, in Romans 12, where it says, tells us not to take revenge because of our jealousy, he says, listen, if, don't take revenge because of your jealousy. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. And if they're thirsty, you give them something to drink. It's like heaping burning coals on their head because, listen, you need to leave room for God's wrath. The only one who has the right to execute wrath because you're angry on the basis of your jealousies is God, because he's the only one whose jealousy is right. He's the only one who can be trusted to execute it appropriately and proportionately and in right relationship to all the other wrongs and goods that have happened. I don't know of any other culture 
that 5,000, I'm sorry, three and a half thousand years ago had that kind of protection for women in relationship to the raging jealousy of husbands. Because God understands the state of our loves. He understands that we know, we know that jealousy is right. And we're so broken, we could never execute what it deserves. And the reason for that, God makes really clear in the Bible, and this is, this is going to be a little uncomfortable, okay? What theologians call it, the theme in the Bible, that, theologians call it the, the theme of whoredom. Now, we don't like to use the word whore because it's fairly derogatory. <clears throat> in fact, in 1995, Ray Orland Jr. published this book called Whoredom, The Unfaithful Wife in Biblical Theology. And Christians were so offended by it that the publisher had to republish the book in 2003 as God's Unfaithful Wife, A Biblical Theology of Spiritual Adultery. Because pe but people couldn't handle it, right? But, but we don't really have another word for whore that works. Because a prostitute, that's a profession. Like, there's like an, a money arrangement. That's not like a woman that's like doing whatever she wants. Like, th that's, a, that's a certain kind of life arrangement in occupation. Right? Adultery could be a one-time thing. It could be like a mistake or something that like something happened and this happened and like it's one time and ugh, right? It's still bad, but it, that's— whoredom is different. Whoredom is usually a woman who just falls into bed with whoever's closest, whatever's convenient, and whatever will get her what she wants. She just—she doesn't think about her sexuality and relationship to loyalty or honor. She doesn't feel herself connected to a relationship of loyalty and honor, but she wants stuff, and she'll—and and she, she doesn't care who's provided for her before. All she cares is who's got the money now. Who's going to take care of her now? Who's going to protect her now? And then she just falls in with whoever that is, and she sells her fertility. She gives her femininity to whoever will give her what she wants, and she turns her lovers into a loaf of bread, it says in the book of Proverbs. That's whoredom. And that is one of the most systematic biblical metaphors for the state of our loves. If you want to know in the most—I know this doesn't make sense—metaphorically empirical sense, what our love is like, the answer in the Old Testament is that we're whores. You cannot understand the beauty of the jealousy of God until you believe that about yourself. You just can't. You, you can't see. You just, you just can't see. The jealousy of God will always offend you because you think you're faithful. You think you're a pretty good person. You, you think that his jealousy isn't really that necessary. Yeah, the covenant. Yeah, the promise. Give me the promises. That's great. But the idea that he he's going to jealously pursue you, and that pursuit might be difficult and painful and dangerous, and it might even ultimately destroy you and not end up ultimately redeeming you. That, to see that, you, you have to know that you're, that you're so wayward of heart. You're such— a moral and spiritual whore in your loves. That's, that is the inheritance of the sinful nature in the flesh. That is the, the people, the race of which you're a part. That is the nature of your life. That's the only way you'll be able to grapple with the, 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 the claim in the scriptures that the normal state of humanity 
is whoredom, is spiritual prostitution, is adultery. In fact, God even says in Ezekiel 16, he's like, listen, if you at least would have been a prostitute, that would have been better. But you're not even a prostitute because I give you all these things. I see, like a prostitute, she has sex with somebody, and then she wants money for it. And if she's smart, of course, she gets the money up front, right? And so, like, she gets something for it. There's a trade. He's like, what you did is you took everything I gave you, you took that, and you gave it to people who basically hated you so that they could have lewd, adulterous relationships with you. I mean, prostitution is too good an adjective. And of course, if you apply it to honor and loyalty in relationship to God and his creation of us and in his covenantal love for us, it is fundamentally misattribution. We don't know who our husband is. Accusation. You haven't been good. I'm going to go to my lovers who really like me and really care about me, and they'll take care of me. And disloyalty. You gave me everything, but that's in the past, man. I'm, I'm looking for somebody who help me now. If you want to see some of the places that deal with this the most graphically in the Bible, Ezekiel 16 and 23, those are B-MA passages. So just know that if you're going to read that out loud to your kids and family devotions. And then Hosea is the clearest example where God tells a prophet to go and marry a woman who's a whore. Sometimes they translate that prostitute, but Gomer isn't actually a prostitute. She's just a floozy. She just falls into whoever's bed seems closest. She doesn't get any money for it. She has kids with multiple people that aren't her husband. She's just, she's got baby daddies galore. And the thing is, is like, God says, look, Hosea, you're going to love this woman, and you're going to take her back, and take her back, and go and find her, and bring her back, because Israel needs to know what it's like for me to love them. Humanity needs to know what it's like for me to love them. That's what it's like for me to love them. Now, the reason why that's important is because that's the only way it makes sense, and it's a beautiful thing, that God's jealousy will either redeem or destroy us in our loves. Right? We ha- part of the reason to see this is, one is, we will naturally disqualify God's jealousy because our jealousies are so ugly, so we have to understand what our, what our loves are like and what our jealousy is really like. But the second thing is, is that we need to know how much we need God's jealousy. What is the only hope for a whore? What is the only thing that can restore her to her true humanity? What's the only thing that can bring her back into what she was created to be? Into all of the beauty of her femininity and her fertility and her loves and her loyalty and her, and her bonding and her, her shared life and her family. Not an indifferent husband. Not a husband who goes and gets another wife. It's good for him. It's not good for her. The redemption of whoredom in us requires jealousy, not passivity and indifference. So one of the question trees you could go through is this. One, about you in the story, about you. Are you wayward or not? Are you wayward or not? And if you are wayward, is the unattachedness— like a nice way to say that is be like, I'm just, you know, I'm just unattached. I don't get— I just don't get that attached. Or like, I, I think that we should be able to like renegotiate things as things go along, right? Is that unattachedness, is that independence? Or is that promiscuity? And does it destroy or does it liberate? Because God's argument is, is that we are wayward. That waywardness is a, pro- is a promiscuity. And that promiscuity is horrifically destructive. 
if that's true, if yes, and if it destroys, then a jealous God is our only hope. It's our only hope of survival. It's our only hope of redemption. It's our only hope to be made an honest woman, as they used to say. But there's two more things I want to tell you to end. One is, you need to know that jealousy is a hard healer because it's emergency medicine. It's a hard healer. You don't, you don't want, you want to live in the covenant of God by faith. You don't, you don't want to be reclaimed by the jealousy of God. Because it is a, it is a difficult, it is a painful grace. He has to, he has to inflict difficult and terrible things on you so that you will come back to your husband. Now, when I talk about this, remember, I'm saying the jealousy of God being executed upon us and the jeal our jealousies being executed the way we want have no relationship to each other. So when I say what God rightfully does to woo back his whoredom of a wife, us humans, I am not saying if this is going on in your marriage, you should do this, okay? But like, metaphorically speaking, God has to cut off our bank account and get the car dealership to repossess our car and change the locks at our house, and get full custody of the children, and do all the things that would make our adulteries as painful as possible. In fact, in the book of Hosea, in this interaction between Hosea and Gomer, and as God is explaining that his relationship with humanity is like this, he says this. She said, that is, the, the human heart says this. I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Right? So she's saying, like, God doesn't give me everything. I, I will find ways to get what I need. I'll go after these—I will find lovers. I will find somebody to give me what I want, and I'll get what I want from them. Right? And God's husbandly response is, therefore, because she says this, and because that is not connected to reality, therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes, and I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way, and she'll chase after her lovers, but she will not catch them. She'll look for them, but she will not find them. And then she'll say, I'll go back to my husband. As at first, for then, it was, I was better off than now. Because she doesn't have enough virtue to say, it was right. The first step in her redemption is to exert so much pain and futility that she'll just say, well, going back to my husband is just at least better. And then when they're together, maybe she can learn what love is. And so here he basically says, I mean, have you ever—okay, so, some of you have never gone hunting in Wisconsin or like hiking through like our woods, but Wisconsin has these terrible thorn trees. They, they don't exist in New York or anywhere else they've ever lived. They, they live under the canopy, and they're just trees, and they're covered with these big thorns. And I, like, I would go mushrooming with my kids, and we'd try to walk through, and like there are times where I'm like, I've got a pretty heavy jacket on because I know they're coming, and I'm like trying to push my way through, and they're sticking through like this canvas— like, gentleman's shooter's coat I have. And I, like, at some point you're like, you know what, I probably should, I'm probably not meant to go this way. <laughs> Plus, some of you have, like, tried to, like, wade through raspberries. Even raspberries, those are tiny little thorns. You, like, wade through, they're tearing up your legs, and you're like, this is awful. Right? But you can always go back, because you're splitting the thorns as you go through. You can always go back, but, you, but going forward is more of the same. And each thorn is a little bit of pain. It's not like he just wants to lop off her head. He's like, every step, there's like a little more tearing, a little more hurt, a little more hoping that at some point she'll be like, look, this is enough, man. I'm going back. Pain. And the second thing is futility. I will so set up the walls and the way these things run so that she'll chase after these lovers, but she'll never catch them. 
She'll be wayward, but in her wayward, there won't be any fulfillment. And it'll just be futility after futility after futility. And listen, the reason I say it that way is because some of you are experiencing that in your lives. Personally, that you are wayward from God. And you are running after other lovers. And you are experiencing pain and you're experiencing futility. And that is a, a brutal grace that comes from the ferocious love of the jealousy of God. Because if he just lets you do whatever you want, it will destroy you. There will be no humanity left in you. The image of God will be so twisted and so broken and so destroyed that it will be ultimately lost. And so the only way that you can be redeemed is for that to be restoked into a fire, and he has to go after you with as brutal a grace as necessary, a grace so brutal that it will either save you or it will kill you. It's like the person that has cancer so bad, and the, the, the doctor says, listen, the best thing for us to do is for me to take out what I can, for us to use whatever means, and we might be able to get you three or four years, right? And the person says, no, I want you to do whatever you have to. I want you to cut it all out. And if I die on the—I would rather die on the table or live— than what you're telling me. I don't want to live four more years. And the doctor's like, well, I think I can do it, but you could also die. Right? That's the choice. And that's the, that's the terrible thing about the jealousy of God, is that I, I, there's a part of me that wishes I could tell you the jealousy of God is ferocious. It will do anything that's necessary, and it will win you back. That is not what the Bible teaches. It's not what Jesus teaches. It's not what the epistles teach. There's nothing in the Bible that teaches that. It is more like that surgery. God will do what brutal grace is necessary to the extent that it will either redeem you or kill you. And that is love. Because if he does nothing, you're going to die. Normal humanity is a highway to death to damnation, to the destruction of the image of God, to the loss of all moral center in who God really is. And if we are, if we are in whoredom, love is to give us a chance. And that chance is a brutal one. And so look, you don't want, you don't want to be won by the jealousy of God. Be won by the grace of God. Be won by the promise of God. Be won by the covenant of God. Be won by the invitation of Jesus. Be won by all the positive things Jesus says. Look, if you'll come to me, I'll give you everything. You'll drink from fountains of living water. In his presence there are pleasures evermore. You were made for him. He created you for himself. He wants you to be his. He, he's calling you to himself. Don't, don't require the jealousy of God. Come to him in faith and ask for the power of his spirit and walk with him. Because the, the jealousy of God is a grace, but it's a brutal one. It's a painful one. And it's for, your, it's for your good and it's loving. But you don't want that treatment. And if you're in it, you can get out of it like right now. You just got to go back to your husband and quit with the thorns and the lovers. And he will give you everything. And he'll make you into something you've never imagined. And then lastly, when you talk about the brutal grace of jealousy, it's easy for people to be, get upset about that. Be like, how could God subject us to that? But we, what you need to realize is, is that though he will hem you in with thorns to guide you back, when it comes to the guilt of our whoredom, 
the damnation we deserve for what we've already done. Those thorns were on him. He was the one willing to take all the unredemptive death that we deserve in our whoredom and to bring it on himself. He bore the thorns of our adulteries, of our prostitutions, of our whoredom. He is the one who is willing, because he loses nothing of his essential self. He's willing to subject himself under the worst humiliations possible of attacks on his person so that we can be purchased back to himself. He doesn't, he doesn't lose his deity doing that. He doesn't lose his sovereignty doing that. He doesn't lose his glory doing that. He loses his comfort. He loses something of his enjoyed dignity. He loses many things, but he's willing to burn all of those to ashes to save you and to save me. That's all just love. But he will save you in all of that as himself as a deity with all sovereignty and through even the loss of all those things as a further and greater display of his glory so that you would be made his own and his inheritance forever. You see, if, if we want to be moved every day, deeply moved by the ferocious love of God, it has to be full of all the weight of glory. It cannot be a cliche that we say. It cannot be a light thing. It cannot be something had on our terms. It cannot be something we define the way our culture likes to define it. It's not a marriage we make until we need a divorce. Only when it is love that is so high and deep and long and wide that it is the goal of our existence just to grasp it. Will it ever have the power to give us something of the fullness of what really happened in the death and resurrection of the Christ? You will never receive better news in your life than God saying, my name is jealous. God, would you please help us um, to so reflect and to so think about the beauty of your covenant love and your jealous love that our hearts are filled to the fullness of your great love and strength and beauty and goodness. Will you make a spiritual honest woman out of me and out of us? Will you show us as you draw us back to yourselves, even if we come back arms and legs bleeding, will you show us the beauty of having our own children at our breast, living in the wholesomeness of our own home, laughing over the meals of our, of our table together, being part of the eternal family and all of the beauty that is in a righteous husband rather than a lover that really hates us and uses us? And will you give us a passion for your deity your sovereignty, and your glory. And will you make it the center of our passions to be faithful as a member of your inheritance? And will you make us people who actually love your love the way it really is? We pray in the name of Jesus who showed it to us. Amen.